Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of the Economist Group which works with organisations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research programme called the Innovation Quotient, which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this first episode, we introduced the Innovation Quotient, a first-of-its-kind benchmarking tool designed to identify gaps and opportunities within global innovation ecosystems and engage with our guests to discuss the key findings of the initiative. My guests today are Dr. Anders Sandberg, Senior Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute, University of Oxford, and Father Paolo Benatti, Professor of Moral Theology, Bioethics, Neuroethics at Gregorian University, and advisor to Pope Francis on issues related to artificial intelligence. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Anders, perhaps I could invite you first to give a little bit more detail about who you are and your relationship to this issue of innovation. So I'm a lapsed computational neuroscientist who ended up moving from the computer science department into the philosophy department of University of Oxford, where I'm researching the long-term future of humanity. So what the Future of Humanity Institute is aimed at is figuring out what are the big picture questions facing us and can we do something useful about it? So that involves researching existential threats to humanity, what we can know about them, and can we intervene to reduce those risks? But also questions about value, what kind of futures do we want, and how do we reason under extreme uncertainty? Thank you very much. And Paolo, if I could also invite you to share a little bit more context with the audience. Well, I'm a Franciscan friar. That means that I'm someone that lives in a really traditional community, not really innovative in the last uh, 700 years. But my background is uh, on engineer, and my life actually is spent also in the academia because I'm uh, a professor in a Pontifical Gregorian University. And the topic of my teaching is ethic applied to technology, the kind of uh, technology that can change radically the human beings like human enhancement, like neurotechnology, and of course, artificial intelligence. Excellent. Well, we certainly have the right people on this podcast. Let me just start with a very sort of general question, because the premise for our research is that uh, we want to look into the enabling environments for innovation for socioeconomic progress. But let's unpack this term, innovation for progress. Um, Anders, perhaps if I could come to you first, what does this idea of innovation for for socioeconomic progress actually mean to you? So there is an ESO standard defining innovation as a new or changed entity realizing or redistributing value. The whole point is an innovation is supposed to be doing something valuable or maybe achieving something we already had in a new way. And I think part of it is we want new kinds of value. When we got the computer, we gained something that we previously could only do by hand and we could get so much more computation done that it transformed the world. Getting the electric light bulb, again, we had light before, but suddenly it was widely available and could be used in a completely different way. So in order to improve society, you will need to get more value using less resources. Because many of the most important uh, innovations are finding new ways of getting things we already needed. And the problem is, of course, we want these innovations to become so cheap over time that everybody gets access to them. We also want to avoid having disvalues attached to them. 
quite a lot of them are double-edged in all sorts of ways and quite often in surprising ways. And that is, of course, the challenge. So you want to nip many of the misfeatures in the bud, so to say, which I think we're going to return to much more. But deep down, innovation is about expanding the range of what we humans can do in the physical and mental world. Thank you, Anders. We will certainly come back to some of these issues because we can look at innovations that have had tremendous positive impact on lives. I'm thinking, for example, of pesticides in terms of how they help to feed the world. However, the unintended consequences we're living with today as well. So this, I think, goes right to the heart of the issue. How do we make sure that we're, we're building into our ideation to our application of innovations, the thinking around the impact that they might have, the unintended consequences? And at the same time, we should recognize that there is a lot of resistance to innovation. Most of us are a bit lazy. We don't like to change habits. We don't need to have to learn new things. Many vested interests don't want new ways of doing stuff. And it's all too easy to point at the downsides and say, no, we should not be doing that. Among us academics, we always tend to be critical whenever somebody proposes to actually do something. So there is this problem that we need to handle the ethical downsides, the risks, the unforeseen effects, without losing the ability to actually innovate, because we need those innovations. Thank you, Anders. Paolo, we just heard from Anders that his focus is on delivering value and dealing with risk. But what's your perspective? If you think that 40,000 years ago, we was able to build something that could float on the, on the sea. And actually, our spreading around the world is connected to innovation, technical innovation that then became also economical and social innovation. So our history is uh, in some way the history of our artifact. And uh, innovation is, of course, something that is artifact related because it's the ability to do something in a most efficient way. But there is also some other tipping point inside uh, our history in which the form of innovation uh, is radically different. Because all the technology that we are talking about are usually understood as special purpose technology. We have a need and we need new tools to be fitted better. But there is a moment in which we develop a technology that is not used to do something but change the way in which we do everything around us. And so when we talk about innovation and economical innovation, we have also to take in account this kind of vision of the world that prioritize our criteria, our distribution, and also the ends that we have behind innovation. So it's just not a matter of values, but it's also a matter of ends. And probably to try to find the best possibility and trying to mitigate the risk, we have to describe also which kind of ends are behind every wave of innovation. So let me just pick you up on that, that point there around um, prioritization as well. And, and, and to bring in Anders' point earlier on around generating value, to what extent do we feel that innovation to date has been focused on generating financial returns rather than trying to solve for some of the, the issues that we face around the world today? I'm thinking not least in terms of climate change, but we could also be addressing issues around growing inequality uh, around the world. How can we ensure that innovation or the uh, application of innovative uh, ideas is more focused towards solving for these type of problems? Anders, your thoughts on that? The most obvious thing is, of course, trying to set up incentives that just align the profit motive with what we societally want. But it's also worth noticing that a lot of innovation happens for other reasons. 
for a long time, there was no innovation system. People were just doing local tinkering and invention and copying successful ideas or investigating it because it was an interesting scientific or philosophical problem. And even in modern times, we quite often see people developing technologies because we think there is an end that makes it useful. The cryptocurrencies were to some degree developed by libertarians in the 1990s, thinking that it would be a great thing to undermine the state and its control over money. One can debate whether that was a good idea or not, but it was in some sense driven by this idea that we can fix the world by doing this. I think in general, when we think about the big ends in the world that we might want to deal with, climate change, and inequality, etc., you quite often want multiple approaches to them because one of the fundamental issues with innovation is that it's creative. And that means we can't really tell where it's going to come from. So you want to set up general goals and general rewards for it. You can, of course, tell everybody, we need to find a solution to climate change. Please innovate. But it's better if you can make money from it or prestige. And that might be done in a lot of different ways, whether that is prices or in a, some other form of esteem. I think we can innovate the systems of rewarding innovation. And I think we actually need to work quite a bit on that because we have still a somewhat limited imagination about why people innovate. Well, thank you for that. I'd like to turn our uh, attention now to some of the findings from our research, the, the innovation quotient, um, which, as I mentioned earlier on, is an attempt to measure the enabling environment for innovation for socioeconomic progress across 40 countries, across five main sectors as well. Just to outline some of our key findings, we find that enabling innovation for progress requires greater alignment, inclusion and collaboration. I think, Anders, you were talking about the need for collaboration. Um, global scale challenges require collective action. And I think that speaks to some of the issues around the flow of data and ideas around the world as well. Um, we need to leverage demographic shifts to benefit from them. And we can be thinking about the range of demographic challenges that countries around the world face from Japan's aging and shrinking population to, say, India with a very young uh, and growing uh, population. Um, we need to support innovation hubs that are responsive to local contexts. And finally, and I think, um, Paolo, to come to you on this, we find that people-centric approach is absolutely critical when individuals are empowered to play a role in the innovation process, uh, for example, outcomes are likely to be more inclusive and progress orientated. And I know that you've got a big focus on, on the role of, of keeping humans in the loop, uh, uh, Paolo. So perhaps I could come to you on that particular point. Well, actually, because when we have innovation, it's not enough that we have a technological solution or economical gain. At one point, we need to have something that we can define as a social contract. You know, we have gold, but to have a gold rush, we need that people believe that gold could be achievable and a movement is starting. When the old Roman Empire would like to bring water to Rome, they start to build this wonderful water pipe. And to do that, there was a needing for collaboration. Then with Roman Empire, slavery and other form of coercion could be enough to produce that form of innovation. But in a free market, in a society, in a Western society where democracy are the key values that keep all together in, in nowadays, you cannot imagine to have innovation through construction or through forcing people. 
And so the idea to build a, a story that can keep people together, that can force them or allow them to collaborate in a way that actually uh, produce the climate in which uh, being innovative is also something that is uh, self-realizing for people and giving to the future a better society is probably the key element that we need. I was always touched by the environment that sometimes you can find in Silicon Valley. Well, this idea of being part of a huge process, not being alone, it's like, you know, the oxygen for fire. And then you need a sparkle. Without any sparkle, there is not the fire. And those stories can shape technology in many interesting ways. The personal computer came out of a classic Silicon Valley story that let's make uh, computers available to everybody and not just the engineers uh, with white shirts. And it had this idea about a personal liberatory uh, technology. Of course, many stories later turned sour. Reality intrudes. Email was a great thing until the spammers discovered that they could send email for free. But I agree that that oxygen is absolutely necessary. And I think there is a lack of that in many societies for various reasons. In my native Swedish society, we like consensus. But that also means that the innovator is a bit of a problem. Because who asked for that innovation? Who are you to come up with something on your own? Shouldn't we, you have discussed with the group before coming up with a new idea? Or making it congregate in particular subgroups and subnetworks? So figuring out how to waft this oxygen into a system or make the system generate its own oxygen, I think is absolutely essential. And if I can add a line to that, you know, because it's really interesting that sometimes you can start without an, a story, without a positive story that is like oxygen. But there are moments in history in which you are forced to that. Think what happened with the first computer. Yes, to have a personal computer, we need that kind of story. But to have computer, we are World War II and the need to produce something that can stop the, the world, like the nuclear bomb. And so ENIAC was the result of that kind of contingency. Well, I just wanted to dig in on that issue there of the um, enabling environment for innovation and collaboration in, in particular. Anders, you're at the University of Oxford. What do you see working well when it comes to collaboration? And I'm thinking there with the academic community, with capital, with the regulators, uh, with NGOs. Um, could you give us a sense of, of what's working well when it comes to collaboration? Now, of course, very easy for me to say that things are working well when I'm sitting in the University of Oxford. So you have the natural connections when you have this kind of really intense environment where you have ambitious people coming in and then later on networking and having also institutions that give you a pat on the head if you make policy relevant uh, outputs. But a lot of it is a kind of habit. There is a system existing. This system, of course, needs to be nurtured. And there have been long periods of the history of Oxford where we have not been doing very much and it's enough to be doing good academic work or at least getting nice dinners in the colleges. And then you get some people that actually bring up, maybe we should bring in some money, actually start businesses, actually transform the world. Most recently... Uh, the perhaps biggest innovation has been the effective altruist movement, which is not so much a technological innovation as taking consequentialist ethics and trying to apply that to charity. And it has generated a tremendous amount of activity. But that is a slightly unusual innovation because it's not about making money for business, but trying to do good better. And one of the few uh, real innovations maybe that is recent from the philosophy department. 
Thank you. You mentioned that ethics and, and Paolo, you mentioned AI. And of course, this is one of your key areas as well. Um, with ChatGPT exploding onto the world and um, a lot of interest in generative AI, what are your sort of hopes, uh, fears around the application of AI, again, particularly in terms of solving for some of these challenges that we face around the world today? Well, to tell uh, with a few sentences, uh, we discover AI is so powerful because AI can predict what happened. So if I apply AI to the, a lot of sensors on the International Space Station, a system can give me a prediction of what will happen in 2 hours, 20 minutes and 50 seconds. So I can act before things happen. But then we discover that when we apply this kind of tools, not only to the data produced by an engineer system that has not so much uh, degree of freedom, but we apply to the data produced by human beings. Well, AI is not only predicting what will happen, but is also able to produce or shape uh, some of the behavior. So it will be interesting to see if generative AI can simple surrogate human innovation or could consume human innovation or could multiply human innovation because with less concentration, with less strength, you can obtain much more. So the social effect of this kind of new way to be in relationship with the machine has to be really well understood. And what I'm not for sure that a lot of school systems like a Swedish one that push very much on digital during education now are turning back because the quality of what we produce inside the students seem not to be enough. So the social effect of AI is the most, uh, for me, problematic things that could be really influential on the innovation capacity. And as your view on, on the application of, of AI and, and how we can build that sense of responsibility and inclusiveness into its application. So the wonderful thing about AI is that it's a for way of outsourcing some human cognition and ability. So on one hand, that means that if I can take a skill or a task and put it in AI, I can spin up many, many copies in the cloud and much more can be done in a very economical way. Unfortunately, that applies both to good uses and bad uses. We're already seeing scammers uh, making use of AI. We are going to see pretty worrisome applications of it in military and surveillance domains. And again, that raises some pretty serious policy questions. But perhaps the most interesting one from a philosophical and long-term safety perspective is that AI is autonomous, maybe not as philosophers would put it, but it can generate its own behaviors and quite often go wrong in very subtle ways because it's surprisingly hard to give accurate instructions about what a system should be doing. But that, of course, means that the failures can become much more serious. So coming up with a way of giving AI a sense of responsibility or aligning it with human values is an extremely urgent priority. It's an interdisciplinary problem that requires both engineering, philosophy and quite a lot of other disciplines because we don't quite know how to do this well. And we don't know how long time we have before it actually becomes so serious that it's an existential risk to us. But even if you think that it's far away to that point, it's pretty clear that you want law-abiding systems. You want uh, autonomous cars that understand that they should stop when there is a child in front of them. You want systems that understand that maybe I'm being employed in a problematic way. At the same time, that requires that social framing because it's non-trivial to figure out what the right thing to do is. The large language models, for example, are constantly getting updated to not do various naughty things. 
uh, I tried to use one to find loopholes in an employment contract and it happily gave me some pretty good loopholes for exploiting the employees. A few weeks later it didn't work. It had been updated and now told me it's unethical to try to exploit your employees. But this is where we're going to have some pretty serious social discussions about where the responsibilities are supposed to lie. Yeah. And, and Paolo, just on that point, perhaps in, in your conversations, whether it's with, with regulators or, or um, people who are looking to apply uh, AI, how do you guide them in that? What, what sort of thoughts do you leave with them so that they're thinking about AI in a, in a responsible and inclusive way? Well, of course, uh, we have to tell that it's really difficult to regulate something before it touched the, in the market because it's really difficult to predict what will happen. And you can have a really bad effect if you don't be really careful in, in doing that kind of process. But there is something that is inside the developer of AI community that is a sort of sense of uncertainty or and the feeling of the power of the instruments that ask some way to be guided to find some hands that are justified for the means that they are developing. And this is also a win-win situation, you know, because the regulators can find uh, already uh, an environment that has a culture that is developing from the bottom. Uh, actually, we have to talk about, to use a metaphorical image, much more like guardrails than not uh, standard norms. So guardrails in the market of the car is something that allow you to be free to decide where you would like to go, but simple give you some guideline to avoid to hit or kill someone else on the other direction or that are walking on the streets. So the stage in this moment are guardrails for uh, for AI. Yeah. Well, thank you. An, an incredibly engaging and wide-ranging discussion, I think, on issues related to innovation for socioeconomic progress with a focus there on ethics, on values, on artificial intelligence as well. But as we get to the end of our discussion, I wonder if I could invite both of you to one thing that we didn't discuss, one issue that should be front and, and centre when we're thinking about applying innovation for socioeconomic progress. Um, Anders, your thoughts? So it's quite common when you propose various solutions that people say, oh, no, that is a techno fix. Uh, you're trying to fix things with mere machines when we should be doing social and cultural change. And then the problem is the social and cultural change is usually even less well understood than the, the, the technological innovation. Quite a lot of techno fixes work really well, especially when they're intervening in a causal chain. If you want to get rid of mercury pollution from a factory, it actually makes more sense of coming up with a good filter for the wastewater or remove the mercury from the industrial process than changing the demand for its product. But we do have this challenge in understanding and having a kind of industrial literacy in our society, understanding what markets are doing, what industries, what infrastructures are. I think we have become so used to that we get electricity and heating and the food that we forget how we're made. And that means that we're both asking crazy demands that were made in ways that are actually impractical or that we don't understand the trade-offs we have to make. There are sometimes very important moral and practical trade-offs. And I want to have more of that industrial literacy. And this is required both for knowing where you might innovate, but also as a general citizen of society, thinking about what kind of civilization am I part of? Thank you very much. And Paolo, the same question to you. 
Well, I, I would like to look at the social environment in which uh, innovation happened, because, you know, uh, it could be really interesting to know if uh, the measurement of happiness of a society, the measurement of well-being of a society is a factor that can influence. So are we innovators because we are in need? how much we are happy to stay as we stay, uh, could be really interesting to see if uh, innovation is a negative effect, so we are in need and we need to change things, or is a positive effect, or probably if there is no correlation among these kind of parameters. But for what we saw, that is a social effect, that is a matter of a relationship, is a matter of environment, that could be really interesting to see this kind of social self-perception and uh, the factor of innovation. Well, thank you both for all of those insights and for joining me today to uh, share your thoughts on this issue around innovation and its application for socioeconomic progress. A lot of the issues that we've been discussing today, I think we'll come back to in future episodes and dig into in a little bit more depth and detail as we share the findings of the innovation quotient as well. Uh, with that, thank you, Dr. Anders Sandberg and Father Paolo Beniti, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. And please join me for our next episode where we unpack the methodology behind the research and review some of the key findings. What makes for a successful enabling environment for innovation and why? And to what extent can best practices identified in one country or sector travel successfully to another, if at all? For more information about the Innovation Quotient research, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.